uh, while in, in custody, being tattooed by an older gang member who ended up being a government informant. And so due to essentially the actions that someone has taken um, while being an agent of the United States, Walter now has permanent markings on his body that make him, uh, that endanger his life should he return to El Salvador. So he presented that case to the immigration judge and he won, except immigration law is nuts. And so even when you win, normally the person who wins sort of gets the benefit of having prevailed. But in uh, what I sometimes call upside down land, um, even if you win, if you're the if you're the immigrant and you win and DHS decides to appeal, you stay in to allow them an opportunity to appeal. So Walter stayed in custody for over a year. And when the appellate court, the Board of Immigration Appeals, uh, issued their decision, rather than make a final decision on his case, they remanded it. They sent it back to the immigration judge on a technicality. I'm going to spare your listeners what that exact technicality was, but it was a technicality. And when they sent it back down, um, the immigration judge who had granted his case was now gone. Actually, a lot of a lot of immigration judges um, left the, the court, the San Francisco Immigration Court, um, right around then, 2018, 2019. And so that judge was gone. Another judge stepped in and that judge actually re-granted Walter's case um, based on the findings of the first judge. So the second judge used those findings and said, yeah, Walter is more likely than not to be tortured in El Salvador. Can you guess what DHS did after that, Jason? And they, they went ahead and said, F it. <laughs> they appealed again. Yeah, they were like, OK, you won again. We'll appeal again. And same thing, they appeal, it's not final, you stay in custody. So Walter stayed in custody for another year. And that decision, that decision came in July. So a couple months ago, we received a decision that shockingly sent it back, but this time not even on a, not even to cure a technicality. The court just sent it back and said, you know, just do the whole thing over again. And that, that is something that I have, I've done this work, I've done deportation defense work for about 15 years and I've never seen anything like that. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and do something that I don't normally do because I do not know the game of basketball, but I'm gonna borrow a beautiful <laughs> analogy. I, I told somebody what had happened and they were like, you know, that's, that's like if LeBron James had made a shot and Anthony Davis, no, you know what? I messed that up. Let me start again. See? You know I don't do basketball analogies. Like, I don't do is there that. Is there any sport that you Let do do an again. analogy? No, there's no sport. There's no sport. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Stay with me. Are you Are you ready? I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. Sure. Okay. There's a game, okay? Mm-hmm. And someone shoots a basket. And <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you laughing because I said basket and not a ball? No, I'm just laughing at the, oh, the okay. now the oversimplification of the analogy. <laughs> I feel like we're getting somewhere, though. Okay, so, okay. so goes, baskets have been shot. <laughs> the shot goes in, and we know that it was either LeBron James or Anthony Davis. Mm-hmm. And if rather than say, hey, they're members of the same team, so the Lakers win, 
the refs, mm-hmm. you know what, we can't tell who shot it. And so just do the game all over again. That doesn't make sense because, because we know the Lakers won. And that's sort of exactly what happened with Walter. What has been clear twice now is that he has shown that he's more likely than not to be tortured in El Salvador. And when you make that very, very difficult showing in immigration court, you're supposed to be protected under domestic and international law. Um, and so there's need to do the whole the game over again. Why do we need to do the game over again? Usually that happens if somebody fouls or someone makes a mistake. And in this case, nothing like that happened. And the crazy part is this is not a game. This is a man who's waited over three years to have some finality to his case, to have some resolution, to have some idea of when he walks out of that detention center, is it going to be to get on a plane to leave this country? Or is it going to be to end up back in San Francisco or Oakland? Where is he going to be? And that that sort of indefiniteness of immigration detention is what makes immigration detention so psychologically terrorizing is that it's not a sentence. It's not, it's not a period of time that you can wrap your head around. It's not a period of time that you can tell your family at the end of this three months, I will be home. Or even at the end of this three years, I will be home. I can't tell Walter as his attorney when he's going to be home, if he's going to be home and which, where home is, right? And that's, that's, really, that's really incredible when you think about it. And does this have a lot to do with that NDAA from 2012? Like you can be held indefinitely. Um, that gets. Or is, a, it, or is yeah, this more like Patriot like Act kind of? This is actually no. This is actually you know it's funny. This is actually really truly basic immigration law. I mean, there there certainly they are related, but this is this is sort of how it's always been. We we the United States can civilly detain you while we figure out whether or not to deport you. And because we, we, the United States, cleverly um, classify that detention as civil, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the protections that the minimum protections that people have when their incarceration is criminal. So when you're in criminal custody, you have the right to an appointed lawyer if you can't afford one. Um, under criminal laws, we have some, you know, we have statutes of limitations for most crimes. You can't just be dragged into custody years after an alleged offense takes place. There's a period of time in which the government has to act. And if it doesn't act in that time, then that period is over. Um, We have Eighth Amendment protections against cruel and unusual punishment, right? The punishment has to fit the crime. There has to be some sort of proportionality of how long we can imprison you based on the conduct, right? So you have all these protections that when you when you take the 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 criminal, I'm putting criminal in quotes here, the criminal classification out, and you replace it with civil, those protections are gone. Why? Because it's civil, and we're not punishing you. And so that's just to to just pause here for a moment. That's pretty intense to put somebody behind bars, shackle them, take them away from their family members place them in custody subject to the same type of things that happen in custody when you're in criminal custody and then tell someone, oh, wait, but don't worry about it because this is not, I know it feels just like jail. No, it feels just like prison, but that's not what we're doing to you. You're just in civil custody until we figure out whether or not to deport you. 
To hear the rest of this show and more, you can find us at This Is Revolution Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, and wherever else you get your podcasts. This is Revolution. Oh, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. I tell you, I don't care what they call me. They can call me a Marxist, a Jesuit, a flat earther, a Trotskyite, a vegetarian. I don't care what I'm called. Because I know why they platform for internationalist perspectives, issues, and world federalism. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm joined here today by Miguel, Alex, and Esten. Hi, everyone. Hello. In today's What's episode, up? we'll discuss. <laughs> What's up? In today's episode, we'll discuss the firing of Nathan Robinson. Uh, the spicy meatball of Italian government formation and the effects of migration has had on the politics of our respective countries and will attempt to tease out a left-wing world federalist uh, position on the issue. So in a creative segment that we call the news, Miguel is going to tell us, uh, talk to us about Nathan Robinson being sacked from the American version of The Guardian. Yeah, uh, so as you said, that's exactly what we are going to talk about. Uh, Nathan J. Robinson, for those who do not know him, is the editor-in-chief of the Current Affairs magazine and now is the former is the former columnist for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll start by showing my hand here. I like Robinson and I like Current Affairs, but I also like The Guardian and I have even donated to them. I like their journalism and the fact that they don't hide stuff behind a paywall and that's a model I wanted to support. So I guess Robinson's opinion pieces for The Guardian were like a nice crossover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why is Nathan J. Robinson no longer a columnist for The Guardian? Mostly because of a tweet. Last December, during US congressional negotiations regarding COVID relief, which was in an appropriations bill that also included military aid to Israel for some reason, Robinson tweeted, and I quote here, Did you know that the US Congress is not actually allowed to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is directed towards buying weapons for Israel? It's the law. Uh, That's the quote. Ha, that's a funny I mean, I guess. That is a funny tweet. It's a lame joke. Yeah, I mean, it's it's meant to be a funny tweet. I don't know that it's super funny necessarily. Yeah, yeah, it's a joke. Mm -hmm. And then, just in case, a second tweet in which he added that there is actually no such law. But I think that always happens. So, you know, just in case anybody really needed that. Of course, he got branded as an anti-Semite. And The Guardian US editor-in-chief John Mulholland sent Robinson an email in which he expressed his concern that Robinson was spreading fake news on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, Which I guess is a way of putting it. Uh, Soon after that, the paper started ignoring Robinson, even after he apologized and deleted the tweet. And recently, The Guardian ended Robinson's column. So, is the editor-in-chief of a newspaper unable to detect sarcasm and honestly believe that Robinson was spreading fake news? If that's the case, I would say he does not really deserve his spot. Uh, I would say that the only logical conclusion is that Nathan J. Robinson was kicked out for criticizing US military aid to Israel. Now, obviously, nobody's entitled to a column in The Guardian. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting because it's so explicitly about that uh, tweet, right? It's not as if, mm-hmm. like, this is really the only yeah. mention of Israel uh, by, like, 
it, at least he's not really i think he mentioned israel once in all of his writing for the guardian uh and he made a not funny joke uh making fun of the idea I... of you know congress people or you know he and hauling over how much to put in a stimulus package but they all agreed millions need to go to the te most technologically advanced military in the world of which the united states provides 20 percent of its annual budget uh which you know is a valid position to hold you know just like he's not entitled to his mm -hmm. guardian position you know israel's not entitled to american funds uh, it's and it was a quite valid point to make that it's strange you know it's a strange thing to like i'm yeah it, it, especially when like there's much more naked like blatant anti-semitism to target uh on twitter as a platform right uh mm -hmm. of right-wing politician to just focus on this bland tweet and you know one of the positive thing is uh that it reveals that the Guardian has this uh, policy of which it has not disclosed to anyone of criticizing uh, the Israeli state's uh, actions uh, is not allowed in the Guardian or on their on columnists. Um, but it's also interesting that uh, so yeah, it's now open about that. But what's fascinating to me is actual like right wing you know free speech anti-cancel culture guys have actually stayed semi-principled on this one of like hey nathan robinson shouldn't fucking get fired even though the guardian technically said hey he didn't get fired because we don't um uh, because our columnists aren't technically employees I, bullshit that's getting like fired gig worker um, he's like a freelancer who's yeah not fired yeah and so I believe he said he makes roughly 15 grand for uh, writing uh, for The Guardian. Yes. And honestly, I'm quite skeptical how he's going to make up that income anywhere else because being a left-wing writer does not make you much money, even if you... <laughs> he's like, going to go hardcore to the anti-Semite. He's just going to become like super right-wing. Uh, well, so just had a show with Katie Halper, uh, who is people... Of the and so I doubt that's going to happen. But it, it, the door's it did, open. It, yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it is. There's this larger issue uh, in our society of critics of Israeli government policy being labeled as anti-Semites, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen it in the UK, right? I think you know it's been too easily dismissed dismissed by the left that uh the anti-semitism claims were just a right-wing thing uh it's not true right there's some very credible things uh found in the labor party on how structurally quite a bit of it was anti-semitic and there's like real anti-semitism on the left right and it should be called out and fought but this was literally not it um and I think it's the ACLU, you know, has rightfully pointed out that, you know, we believe in free speech or whatever, and we guarantee free speech in every way except on the issue of Israel. Uh, many states in the United States prohibit employees from uh, boycotting Israeli goods, uh, regardless of your thoughts. 32. Yeah. Regardless on your thoughts of BD BDS, right? It. That's ridiculous. The the idea that a government can dictate 
what you can or cannot buy or uh, the political decisions you take is insane. Um, and this has just continued. And, you know, I have my problems with sections of the BDS movement and uh, particularly the idea of an academic boycott. Uh, I, I don't find that useful. But just the idea that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic just because you're singling out the only existing Jewish state uh, by talking about their human rights abuses is quite ridiculous. And that's not even an anti-Zionist position to take, right? It's not, easy, it's not even if uh, they're saying being an anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic, which is a dubious claim to make as is. But even if Nathan Robinson's an anti-Zionist, that tweet could be t tweeted by anyone, Zionists included, right? So the idea that that tweet was anti-Semitic in any way is just preposterous. I got, I got a little heated over this issue, and I don't even like Nathan Robinson, right? I He's just like a left social democrat who I'm like, he's a bit moralistic on issues, and I, I kind of find him a tad annoying. But I was like, even me, who hates Nathan Robinson, hates a strong word, but like, <laughs> finds him a little obnoxious. It's like, hey, what the fuck is up with this? And I, that's been my favorite genre of tweet right now, is... I don't like Nathan Robinson, but this is fucked, and it's coming from people on the left and the right. Uh, yeah, I, I want to hear what Barry Weiss has to say about this and uh, censorship. Um. <laughs> she 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 did tweet something. She oh, said she? she she something like she stood with Nathan Robinson, but she didn't believe this was the whole story or something like that. I don't have the tweet in front of me right now. Okay. She did say something about it. Okay, then I take back my glib remark. Good for Barry Weiss. You know, she's a liar on a lot of other things, but, uh, you know, she was intellectually honest on this one issue. So I'll give Barry Weiss that. Who is, from all, I, all accounts I've heard, a very delightful person if you know her. But online, she's a bit despicable. Um, so The worst you... thing to me is yeah. that we always end up talking about this not about the actual Israeli human rights abuses, because the moment somebody talks yeah. about that, the conversation de derails onto this topic mm -hmm. and to whether we like or don't like Nathan Robinson in particular, right. and to whether uh, <laughs> this is anti-Semitic or it isn't. Mm -hmm. the, the, rea the actual reality on the ground doesn't change a bit because of this, but yeah. it's the conversation that we are always forced on, even on this show. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah well, I, it's, uh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, in particular... it's like uh, you said earlier, uh, you can't make much money with uh, leftist writing. And mm -hmm. yeah, the problem here is it's it's hard to write, it's hard to understand, and it's, uh, yeah, obnoxious <laughs> to read. And that's the problem. <laughs> like, when, you, when you're confronted with one topic, there are so many angles um, in leftist theory that you have to look at it and... You just don't get to an end, and that's why why Brandon keeps on ranting here from one topic <laughs> to another. You just yeah. can't stop because there are so many multiple angles. And me coming from Germany, like we literally learn uh, about uh, the atrocities Hitler committed uh, towards the Jewish community for four years in school. And I'm completely for this because education is the single most um important thing when you want to battle xenophobia and anti-semitism and racism and all these bad things 
and you still um, have to keep your mind open because in another discussion we uh, have in Germany really often is when we are confronted with uh, modern human rights atrocities and you start to argue that there are at least parallels and I will talk about this later on this episode um, to, to the Holocaust or to the Shoah and uh, you know Uh, there is always some leftists coming up and no, no, please don't compare the this single uh, incident in human history to what we are experiencing nowadays for this and that reason. And I always like to counter this one with, uh, but if you if we want to follow the slogan never again, um, we are forced to look at um, parallels from the right. Holocaust to today's. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, I think happening. it's a spectrum on that particular issue, right? Of uh, labeling, you know, what are actual concentration camps in America and across the world yeah. to, but then, which is extremely valid. And that was an argument I got into a lot two years ago. Uh, but on the other one, you get uh, posters of say, like Ariel Sharon as Hitler and things like that, which yeah that's anti-semitic <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and you know the left just goes like from one extreme to the other on that kind of stuff uh, mm -hmm. but I, i i take your point uh generally yeah. it's the, the well, same and... problem with, with zionism because um by default most um most leftists seem to be anti-nationalist but zionism is like a special thing inside uh this year uh you can understand why uh, the jewish state has been established um i i don't really want to discuss here which solution would have been better because i'm not really fit for that there are there's so many literature you can read on that topic and in the end nobody knows what could have been done better um but uh if you if you really look into it uh there is always this duality that As a default leftist, you don't want borders, you don't want nations mm -hmm. mostly. Um, but the Jewish state, yeah, that's that's something special. And uh, it's well, really hard think, to argue on that one. I think you're coming from the perspective of the German left. That is not a thing here in the States. Uh, there's left Zionists and stuff, of course. But, you know, mm -hmm. Germany historically, because of the Shoah, has been a lot more reticent uh, to... Uh, not necessarily uh, promote an anti-Zionist politics, but just like a non-Zionist uh, point of view on uh, the validity of the state of Israel. And I am a po I'm not an anti-Zionist. I'm a post-Zionist, right? Uh, I think it, it's a done situation, and that, but that's a different conversation, right? And I think it's one we'll probably have in the future. Um, but you know, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult situation, and particularly and going back to what miguel was saying it's we we can't talk about the human rights abuses of israel over the palestinian people like uh the state department has declared oxfam and amnesty international as anti-semitic organizations right that's fucking preposterous It, it's ridiculous and the adl on american civil rights issues is perfect well not perfect it's decent right uh as a liberal organization it, it does well except on the again on the issues of 
Palestinian rights and uh, Israeli human rights abuses, it's uh, comp either completely silent or openly apologetic for it. Uh, part of that is, and there's an article in Haaretz, of which I'm a proud subscriber, uh, that discusses, you know, particularly in the Anti-Defamation League, that there's this split between the younger generation, right, that is much more pro-peace and less associated with the Zionist project, and the donors, right, who are older and certainly much richer uh, than the volunteers and the workers of the ADL, and they push the agenda, right? And that's, you know, we talk about the Israel lobby, and that gets very complicated because it goes into some murky areas, right, of the idea that Israel and the Jews control the American government, right? Um, but I do think it's safe to say that donors, right, across uh, the ethnic and uh, religious spectrum dictate what uh, NGOs do and how they operate. And uh, in this way, it, those uh, corporate and uh, billionaire donors dictate uh, American uh, NGOs approach uh, issue. Um, well, I, I, yeah. I think here this uh, whole issue can be shifted in, or can be seen in the terms of class warfare as well, because as well as in uh, or in Israel as well as in uh, the USA, there are people that um, yeah that that like trading weapons. It's mostly uh, mostly those that have the, enough money to trade weapons, or those that gain money from selling weapons. So um, in the end, it's about uh, keeping money in the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. And for Israel, it means oppressing poor people in Palestine and in in America, they gain money. And it means the same thing. Uh, it's oppressing uh, poor people in Israel and Palestine. Yeah, same. Because yeah, it's, you know... This and in America as well, because yeah. in the end, it's the working class again that manufactures uh, mm -hmm. those weapons. Yeah, it's... Mm. Um, I really like the, the religious element in the U.S. about the, the Book of Revelations. It says that the, the Jewish people will return to the, to the bond. Don't get me land. started on evangelical. So we need Israel to be like, you know, take over all of Palestine because that's the to the second coming of Jesus yeah. Christ. Which I love is that. Super... I think it's gnarly. What a gnarly belief, mm. man. That's well, oh, yeah, and the, that Jews are uh, going to hell, right? That's implicit in that belief. Um, yeah, yeah. They're just right, helping us they... get Jesus back so that they all they, were like yeah. using it. Dude, it's crazy. But that's they fund. Those are the churches who are funding. They donate all the money. So it's a bunch of Christian people who so, believe that for Jesus to come back, they have to promote settlements in Palestine. I mean, it's a weird. Right. So what kind of I, world? I mean, when you. So but I was. I, I think uh, America's people just look forward to getting rid of Ben Shapiro. Uh, no, but I do think uh, evangelicals do look forward to getting rid of the Jews, uh, and it's quite explicit in that. You know, I was raised in an evangelical Christian environment, and I know people who've worked uh, on Israeli, uh, you know, uh, olive farms, and uh, who've uh, volunteered to do that for uh, Israeli businesses, right? To give up free labor for a week. It's fucking insane. And it's like the definition of scab labor. Um, you know, I, and growing up in 
Oklahoma is exceptionally pro-Israel, right? Uh, at, when I was a Democrat, we door knock and it wasn't rare to, for like state officials, right? Uh, what's your stance on Israel? Dude, I'm, this person's running for county commissioner. You know, it's it's <laughs> yeah. like what the fuck. Um, so yeah, you know, so it's, about it. it's a deeply ingrained issue. Is, uh, and is as someone back. who's converting to Judaism, right? You know, Israel is in a, a huge topic of discussion, right? Uh, but you know, and it's important that we don't go into a too simplistic view of the situation. I. I I don't know really anyone who's defending this guardian decision and honestly they need to retract it. it it's just shameful um so miguel do you have any last thoughts on uh because honestly i don't think i'll be buying or being subscribed to the guardian anytime soon uh after well i wasn't going to anyways i was always just going to steal <laughs> the guardian because i think it's still kind of trash um uh, but I mean, I wasn't subscribed either. I donated like once, yeah. but you know, I don't think I don't think I'm gonna be donating again. I don't. might, on the other hand, subscribe to Current Affairs. So who knows? Yeah, Ooh. you know, if you like that soft, soft social democratic left, you know, it's perfect. Um, I love it. Yeah, that's exactly who I am. That's exactly yeah. me. and that's valid. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm My I'm a bit of... more hardcore, and see, that's fine. Um, I do gotta say. The U.S. Oh, Guardian yeah, is still better than the British, you know. At least it's not like the center of Turf Island. But <laughs> I don't think I'll be uh, subscribing anytime Turf. soon. Um, so, Miguel, I do believe you're going to tell us about what I've deemed the spicy meatball of Italian government formation. That's right. It's a fascinating story. Uh, <laughs> so essentially, Mario Draghi is back. I don't know if you know who wait, Mario wait. Draghi is. He. Ch uh, <laughs> right here, I got an autograph, autograph of him. <laughs> yeah, oh. that's true. Ooh. There you go. Yeah. Uh, what? Even more. Keep money. going. Wow. Now you're just showing <laughs> off. Now you're just showing off. <laughs> yeah. How push <laughs> Okay, so uh, for those who do not know, Mario Draghi chaired the European Central Bank between 2011 and 2019. And on February 3rd, he was tasked with forming a new government for Italy. And Draghi is most famous for having uttered three words, whatever it takes. When he said the European Central Bank would do whatever it took to save the euro, uh, before chairing the European Central Bank, Draghi was chair of the International Financial Stability Board and governor of the Bank of Italy. And now, depending on when this comes out and where you're listening to it, he may or may not be the new Prime Minister of Italy. So he's perhaps as technocratic as it gets. Gotta love and it. And how did this technocrat get to be the new Prime Minister of Italy? And why does Italy need a new government? What does Italy there need a government? That's what I'm about to do. <laughs> what? Yeah, good uh, question. Good question, actually. They could just do away with governments. Uh, there are two main characters in this Outside drama. Outside the box, Italy. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and th there are two now former prime ministers who are this story. Uh, Giuseppe Conte, who led the government up to right now, and Matteo mm. Renzi, who was prime minister between 2014 and 2016. So Conte was appointed prime minister after the last Italian general election, 
which saw a rise of the far-right League Party, one of the really, really strange anti-establishment five-star movement. And both parties agreed to form a coalition government with Conte, who's an independent, at the top of the government. So the leader of the League famously took the post of Minister of the Interior, and Italy's hostile policy towards migrants and refugees became a staple, so that wasn't great. In 2019, the League party pulled its support from Conte, hoping that there would be a new election and that they would win in a landslide. But instead of going to a new election, the center-left, for lack of a better word, Democratic Party, agreed to enter Conte's government alongside the Five Star Movement. And alongside the Democrats and the Five Stars came a minor parliamentary faction called Italia Viva, led by former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi. He's back, baby! Renzi had risen to prominence as mayor of Florence within the Democratic Party. Yeah, he's back. He never left. Sadly, he never left. Uh, he was like young and handsome and he was like the future of the party and the future of the entire European socialists and Democrats. He was essentially like better O'Rourke for Italy and kind of for Europe for a while. Uh, he became the leader of the Democratic Party in 2013 and Prime Minister of Italy in 2014 when he was just 39 years old. Oh, so he really His is government did some good things, yeah. including, for example, the recognition. Yeah, except for the part where he actually got elected to something instead of losing every time. So, yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's a winning, he's a successful Beto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fine. Uh, so... Renzi's government did some good things, including, for example, the recognition of civil unions for same-sex couples. But he really had a thing for economic reform and modernization, which in the mouth, in the mouth <laughs> of a liberal is one of the scariest things I can think of. In 2016, Re Renzi called a constitutional referendum uh, with a number of proposals that, if passed, would strengthen the executive against the Italian Congress. He also promised to resign if he lost the referendum. Spoiler, he did lose, and he had to resign the premiership. And after the last election, in which the Democratic Party did not fare well, Renzi resigned as leader and formed his new party, Italia Viva. Ooh, and I have seen... Live. I like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have seen it described as an attempt to emulate uh, like Emmanuel Macron's En Marche. Just to see how well they are doing it, Italia Viva is currently polling at around 3% and Renzi is one of the least trusted politicians in the country, which I think is... Mm. If only on March <laughs> it worked that way as well. So maybe he's more like Beto than we thought. You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe he's like becoming Beto. <laughs> if we were some QAnon guys, we would say he's playing 5D chess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like yeah. lose all the time <laughs> until plan. you're not really taken seriously anymore mm. and then just blast through and win everything yeah i i wouldn't yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. just gotta yeah. wait for Watch. it the storm is two months after this election renzi is going to be prime minister <laughs> the, storm is coming. the renzi yes. storm <laughs> yeah okay so up until very recently, Italy was led by Conte with the support of the five stars, the Democrats and Italia Viva. But Renzi and Conte did not get along well. In particular, they had a dispute over the COVID economic recovery plan, which Renzi wanted to use to, quote, radically reform the country's economy, whatever that means. So after some dramatic weeks, Renzi pulled his party's support from the government and Conte was forced to resign. 
the president of Italy tapped Mario Draghi to be the country's new prime minister. He agreed to begin coalition talks with the major political parties, and all of them, from the Democrats to the Five Stars to Italia Viva to Silvio Berlusconi's right-wing Forza Italia and the far-right League Party, all of them seem to be interested in joining the cabinet. If that ends up happening, and by the time you are listening to this, it may have happened already, it remains to be seen what Draghi and the parties will actually want to do about anything, and whether the League will be able to once again hijack the government's agenda. The even scarier thing, though, is if this coalition government comes through, the opposition will be led by the even further to the right Brothers of Italy, a party that sometimes outflanks the league and that has been rising in the polls for some time. What so I think that? it, yeah, yeah, it's great. All, so, all I can think about now is that after yeah, after Renzi's losing streak, he also time. lost trust in his uh, coalition partner, which is just him <laughs> carrying on with his streak. Yeah. Uh, honestly, this uh, this reminds me a lot of going back oh, to I Israel. Um, you know, there's a current uh, election about to go on, uh, trying to unseat Bibi Netanyahu, and it's like eerily <laughs> fucking familiar. Um, so, uh, you know, the liberals suck and they're not going to perform well. So Likud suffered a split before this election, and uh, Gideon Saar uh, is the main competition at this point, and he's like. He's as far right as Bibi Netanyahu. He's just <laughs> less corrupt, which isn't saying much. Um, and so in order to, to keep power, Bibi Netanyahu's entered into a surplus vote sharing uh, scheme with the uh, Haredim, uh, ultra-Orthodox part of religious parties. You know, these are the parties that uh, uh, are leading the settlements uh, in Palestine. Uh, and he also... Uh, entered in with this agreement with a, the, a party that's descended from uh, Rabbi Mayor Kahan, um, who you guys may know as being a fucking terrorist, uh, who uh, whose group murdered a Palestinian activist here in the states, and they fled to Israel, um, and officially they're outlawed in Israel, but you know, now they might play a part that, in a Netanyahu government to making the laws. Uh, after this That's next good, election. That's 5D chess. Yeah. I, <laughs> the fascist story. Well, we are back to the liberals mm. again, enabling fascist yeah. lawmaking. Yeah. The fucking liberals. Only they did something different. <laughs> yeah, it's like liberals and conservatives are both super fucking opportunistic and they'll take any chance to be in power. Even if it means like letting the worst people in society have a voice. Ugh. Yeah. Anyways, oh, yeah. keep going, Miguel, before I go on another rant. <laughs> I think it is pretty clear I don't have a very high opinion of Renzi or of anybody else, really, Conte or Draghi or the Democrats, and definitely not the Five Star Movement, which I can't really understand. But to be fair, they are the ones that have shown the most wariness towards the League entering the government again, so I guess at least they learned something from last time. I don't know if you all have thoughts on this new Draghi cabinet. I am more than... A, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> right, so uh, for our listeners, uh, five. <laughs> the f sorry for interrupting all the time. The five-star movement would be like roughly analogous to like... Uh, the yellow vests in France, this kind of like amorphous, like anti-establishment, just like sentiment and not it's really a a political 
uh, formation. Like, oh, we have this strong political program. It's more, Gnarly. fuck the man, man. The, the man <laughs> oh no, he's taking a drink of water. No, no. What did Alex say? You're gonna say something, Eston? Stash hmm? about the man. What did you ask about the man, Alex? You know about the man? No, no, it's uh, the all, all the stuff that are going on against the men in suits. So, uh, like uh, as a symbol for the anti-establishmentarianism, uh, we I experienced it here in Eastern Germany as well. We, um, if you want to look into it, it's um, kind of funny, kind of sad as well. Uh, the the road I grew up at is called the B ninety six. Like uh, B is for Bundesstraße, Federal Street and number 96 and the, since corona uh, has started there have been going on protests along the road with people uh, flying the the uh, flag of the german reich like uh, the second reich not the, the third one uh, when we were a monarchy <laughs> yeah. and uh, the flag is uh, black white and red and but they're it's commonly are... used by neo-nazis right they fly yeah, 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 the third yeah, right flag is illegal um the thing is uh they're all united yep. by this anti-establishment uh sentiment at least and what's sad to see is that middle class people are getting sucked into it as well like um the owner of a, a shop for sporting stuff sporting goods um in my in my little hometown who always has a hard time because you know um trade or or markets have shifted have shifted to the internet and having a store just uh, doesn't pay as much money anymore and he just wants to make a living and now that stores uh, have to be closed he's pretty hit pretty hard and started with some cri criticism there's well criticism towards uh, how the economic uh, repercussions of the uh, covid crisis are uh, handled. I have a few points of my own, uh, which I won't get into now because I don't want to start uh, a rant that's as long as Brendan's. But uh... oh, burn! <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing is, uh, you, uh, I'm I'm friends with him on Facebook, and you could see a shift in his attitude. Like it started with uh, this. Uh, valid criticism and now it's uh yeah we can't open shops but there are also immigrants we have to pay and this can't this just can't be it and stuff and like day for day he gets radicalized into this uh right wing into these right wing positions of um securing my own and uh yeah everybody else get fucked so i can understand there are a lot of things he has to pay rent on his uh shop which yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's sounds it's, American. Uh, same tendency, and uh, <laughs> honestly, it's it's um, it's sad to see that uh, the left or these leftists or I I think there are some core leftist belief that can be found in there, uh, but it's it gets shifted and turned in a way that it supports uh, right wing uh, politicians and uh, actual policies and. It's just sad to see that uh, right-wingers are so much uh, more efficient at using leftist theory than actual leftists. Yeah. I fight <laughs> you over those words, but I don't you're want right. you to be right. I don't want you to be right about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be right on this one either. Yeah. I, really, I don't want to be right on a lot of positions I hold, but uh, yeah, it is what it is. And so to 
kind of drift this conversation into our last one. As you're uh, alluding to uh, with uh, with the last coalition's government and they're allowing the right wing uh, such a purchase in the decision making is very heavily responsible to the uh, insane uh, re- batshit response of the Italian government to the migrant crisis uh particularly oh how should i say it uh just allowing people to drown in the mediterranean uh and the putting people in camps just the awful treatments of refugees in general um and so this is a broader discussion and uh just talking about migration and whole, not necessarily refugees, but uh, economic migrants as well. Um, in the United States, you know, it's mostly undocumented immigrants is the issue uh, that comes close to my home. Uh, but Est- uh, not Estin, uh, Alex, I do believe you have some experience with the, uh, as the BBC calls it, the migrant crisis of a few years ago, and uh, yeah, like, how it played um, out in Germany. When, when in 2015 there were uh, one million refugees at the German border, uh, Amer- uh, America Merkel, and now I'm getting I'm getting brain legs as well. Um, Angela Merkel um, formed his uh, formed her famous sentence: uh, "Wir schaffen das. We can make it." Uh, yeah, yeah, through the Merkel route. The Merkel rhombus, as we uh, declared it last week in English. Um, yeah. And yes, of course, there was a lot of protests. Like uh, the the AfD, the most right wing party in the German federal parliament, right now is running solely on uh, the anti immigrant issues, and they are getting a lot of traction, uh, mostly here in uh, Eastern Germany. Uh, if you want to look up a map, um, they get mostly voted here. And the thing is, um, oh no, I start with my experience. So uh, when when the migrant crisis hit, and when it got clear that in uh, in a village really close to my uh, hometown there will be a refugee camp established, uh, a good friend of mine and me uh, went to the mayor of this small village and offered to teach the uh, refugees German to some extent at least. Um, like our thought process was something like there's a lot of um, racism going on here and if there's a way people could talk at least um, maybe there would form some or some some mutual understanding would be formed and yeah I was pretty idealistic in my worldview back in these days so uh, we went to the mayor and offered uh, our services and um, we we did all this voluntarily, so we uh, didn't have any, uh, or there was no money to be made. So it was just because we wanted to help. And when when everything was cleared up, so uh, there was an um, some evening there was an informa- or there was some information given in the church of this small village and of course the whole village came together and the mayor of the village had to announce all the things happening and it got dirty there really quick so um, first it was no we don't want that and uh, soon it went on to (laughs) one shouted we hate brown people and it's um, that was the moment when my friends and me left Uh, it was just ugly to see 
mostly because of uh, German history. So uh, the, the refugees came, uh, they came by bus um, and uh, they had to be escorted by police because uh, a lot of yeah, actual fascists uh, wanted to demolish the bus and uh, hurt the refugees and um, yeah, that was that. So uh, when we went there in our first week, uh, they everything was pretty um, yeah, uh, n not really chill. There were no chill vibes. It was all um, they didn't know what they had to expect of us. They had uh, seen a lot of. Uh, ugly German faces um, wanting to hurt them and stuff and uh, so they they might have been a bit afraid of us and um, soon we could uh, form good relations to them and they, most of them were pretty appreciative of our help so um, one guy that stayed in my mind is um, he uh, was a biochemist from uh, Damascus in Syria and he was really intelligent. He came here with his wife and uh, his daughter, which was born on the way here. Uh, they came on foot mostly. And yeah, it's, uh, he, he was one of our quickest learners and he helped us teach all the others that, that stayed behind and stuff. And another guy that stayed in my mind was one uh, that had his leg broken in Hungary, I think, which is another 1.5k kilometers to walk here. So all these, all this way, he came here on on a broken leg, and he was limping all the time, like a Jeez. bit. And we first th uh, didn't think much of it, and uh, but then one day uh, we looked into it a bit more, and it became apparent that uh, his his leg looked as if he had two knees, like there was a pretty significant angle on the. Oh. Um, you know, the bottom part of his leg. I don't know what it's called in English. Um, yeah. And that's when we asked him and he was telling us, yeah, yeah, uh, my leg has been broken for some some time now, but I don't know. Um, so um, that's when when we uh, just worked out uh, a plan with our with the uh, agencies uh, to get his leg leg fixed. So. It was it was really strange. He didn't want to get on on our nerves, so he just didn't mention his broken leg. And he's fine now, uh, which is good. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, that was a pretty strange experience. And in general, it was uh, pretty cool to teach them. They were um, like you could split them into them. They were the younger people really wanted to learn, but there were a lot of older people as well that uh, you could see uh, they were pretty traumatized from uh, seeing the war, having to flee their home. And I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I can... Rightfully so. I can really see why. And uh, we heard stories about the war that went great. Uh, I want to get into them, into them here because they are pretty graphic, even more than this guy's leg. And uh, the older people, they didn't really participate in our... Um, in our lessons because or i don't know most of them were just uh i th i think they lost all hope for their life um they didn't do much all day they they didn't know what to do like uh they uh, we had a guy that was i think 62 and he had a small shop in uh, like some some small town in the uh yeah near uh, damascus as well and he just 
he came here, he lost everything, he lost his wife on the way here. Uh, she just died because of being cold and being old. And then he came to us Jeez. and yeah, had, had nothing left of his former life. And I, I don't know, I, the thing I want to say here is that um, when, we, when we look at the media and, uh, and see there are 1.5 million people at the German border, it's sad to think of all these people in numbers because every, every number that is a single person is an individual that has had a backstory and just needs help. And here I will get now into ranting about leftist theory again because um, <laughs> all, all these wars uh, that are fought in the Middle East are, uh, to secu are in place to secure uh, our way of life like if you if you look at uh, your individual um, ecological footprint you will see that it's more than one and like it repre represents uh, how many earths we would need if uh, every person on earth lived our way of life um, that's the problem with uh, western societies especially in the imperial core we <laughs> We gather resources uh, that, uh, or it's just uh, more than uh, we should take, at, to say the least. Um, there's also an economy, um, this theory of unequal exchange, which uh, focuses on that problem. And I want to say here that as long as we, as we uh, are glad gladly taken taking in all these resources we want for our life like all this oil all these um, minerals we need to build computers and stuff um, we will have to deal with refugees because they are just following all the good stuff we are taking from their countries and there's some in my opinion there is a moral imperative to fight for them um, instead of uh, fighting for uh, having national borders and here I get to my last point I want to mention here. Um, I made this earlier about uh, how some leftists always jump in and say, um, no, no, we, we can't compare anything to the Holocaust. And here's one thing I want to say that um, in, in the European Parliament, some years back, there has been a discussion about if uh, refugees should be secure or should be Yes, secured from uh, drowning in the Mediterranean Sea or not. And in, in my opinion, it, this mm -hmm. discussion or this view on things has come to a point where we legalize dehumanizing people again. And it's the same thing that happened to Jews in, in the yeah. Third Reich. And I don't want to see this again. And us Europeans, we have to fight against uh, this categorization of people yeah it's you know that rings true to a lot of my experience here in the states of um you know um a lot of our uh, so a lot of undocumented people here or you know even uh just documented immigrants here uh, particularly coming from uh latin america are being pushed here uh and it's widely the results of American foreign policy of intervention in the South and the neo-colonialism, right? The economic exploitation that Alex is uh, describing, uh, robbing these places of their material wealth and uh, making life 
nearly unlivable in a lot of places in the world. And then we have the balls to say, but you can't come here, right? Where we're taking uh, all these resources and where um, you will be safe from oh, those ga uh, gangs or from death squads that, you know, we train. Yeah, you can't come here. Um, I think of kids who I grew up with, right? Um, I live in Oklahoma, which is just north of Texas, right? It's pretty close to uh, the border. And uh, so a lot of my classmates growing up were undocumented. And really, we never really thought of it as a thing, right? Until it really came crashing home the junior to senior year of high school. And when we, you know, all the people born here started talking about going to college and where are you going to go? And uh, have you filled out your FAFSA, your uh, student aid forms and things like that? And we started to see some of our classmates, right, were technically dreamers. And so they engaged in those conversations with us. But a decent uh, selection of our, our class just never talked about it, right? And we, we wondered why, you know. Uh, you know, some people thought, oh, they're just lazy or things like that. But no, quite a few, they just, they knew they weren't going to go to college, right? They knew that they weren't going to get uh, student aid. Uh, they're worried about applying uh, to colleges. And they were worried about putting a target on their backs. Um, and a lot of decisions are made like that. I uh, worked in a elementary school here uh, working with special needs students. And there's a student here that came down with pneumonia and a very bad case uh, to the point where we thought it was possible this kid wouldn't make it. But the parents were terrified of taking uh, this uh, pre-care, uh, so four or five-year-old, uh, to uh, the doctor, right? Because they were afraid that, uh, that they would be reported on and that ICE would take them away. Uh, and so it was a week or so before this uh, kid got medical attention. And that was after we, uh, you know, made sure somebody would go to this clinic with them uh, who spoke Spanish and all that and could guarantee them uh, that nothing would happen. Uh, and this kid was dramatically affected by it. He came back and he had lost a lot of weight. He, he was in bad shape for like months afterwards. Health. Um, and so there's all these, you know, um, and, you know, it was only as I was exiting high school that I actually became conscious of this and how our uh, immigration policies here in the States uh, inflict terror upon my neighbors. I went, you know, back, I was, as I discussed, raised in an evangelical Christian environment. So I went on a mission trip, right? We went to Chicago and we ended up visiting this church that was just a storefront. Um, but there was a whole family, there's a family living there of this woman who uh, couldn't leave this church uh, um, without uh, ICE, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, de uh, resting her in her. Um, her name was Elvira. She, it's a pretty famous case. Um, and she, 
she was an incredibly brave woman and it was and it's especially disheartening when like a core of the resistance to these uh policies is faith-based right churches uh are the and for uh you know reason uh cops don't want to go into a church right that's sacrilegious and things like that but it, it's quite uh disheartening when it's the churches that are offering a more practical uh stance on these issues than a lot of the left even though a lot of the left would support you know even open borders but uh just you know a better immigration policy um and then coming back from that i engaged in some activism on the issue and this we started going into the summer of 2019 uh some of you guys may remember that this is when donald trump started detaining uh of migrants at the border right and separating children from their parents uh and especially uh a big issue here in oklahoma because one of the sites on which they were going to put these children was uh on a military base called fort sill uh fort sill was uh during world war ii was an internment site or as it should be rightfully called a concentration camp for japanese american citizens uh, and over 700 uh, Japanese-American citizens were detained at Fort Sill. Uh, one, one man died there. And, uh, and so obviously we rallied. <laughs> we were not going to let them put a uh, concentration camp in our backyard. It was nimbyism at its finest, right? Um, and there was a lot of activism of stopping the government from doing this. Uh, and... We had a protest down at Fort Sill. Uh, it was actually one of the first time I ran into this Maoist cult called uh, the RCP, which that's just a fun story I can tell later uh, off air. Um, but we uh, we had this protest and, you know, it was interesting. You know, we got a lot of signatures, things like that. But and but there was another protest a month later, I want to say I couldn't attend the work. Um, but it was uh, breathlessly reported on in uh, Oklahoman media as socialists and communists take over the streets uh, because a uh, highway uh, out the, the road leading into the base was occupied. Uh, and of course, there were communists and socialists there, but it was a much bigger movement. Uh, and the Trump uh, administration, after uh, national spotlights on this you know the symbology of putting these kids in the japanese internment site was a bit on the nose which is a theme with trump and the state of oklahoma uh as we've discussed in like our first episode of him uh having his first rally during the epidemic on the an near the anniversary of the tulsa race massacre in tulsa um it's very spot on when it comes to oklahoma um you know so we got this overturned, but it was, it was, I was already into socialist politics at the time, um, but it was a radicalizing experience because I was a child during Obama. You know, uh, 2016, I was 16 uh, when he left office. Uh, and so I, I, like, I knew Obama was bad, but I didn't know how bad. And it was only then that I learned Obama did the same thing. Uh, Obama. Uh, used these military bases to detain migrants 
uh, you know, he was called the deporter in chief. And while it wasn't so naked as the Trump administrations or so just na just so nakedly evil, right? Just ripping kids from their parents. Uh, you know, this wasn't anything. Uh, and that's when I started to like really dive into like the history of ice and the border control. There's this thing out. It's called, uh, I listened to it, a podcast about it. It's called Border Fash. It's uh, red lines. It's, a, it's about borders in general and how it fuels the fascist movement. And it uh, dives into the topic of border fascism, right? Uh, these imaginary lines on paper just galvanizes the far right um, and leads to its uh, murderous ambitions. Um, in Southern California, before the, the Second World War, uh, the economic system was often called fascism in the fields, right? Uh, the the use of uh, terror of the clan and of uh, right wing uh, militias and of the border control at that time and terrorizing uh, migrants uh, goes back to the founding of the patrol. Actually, you know, thousands of people have been murdered by that agency. Uh, and now we see that in the United States, 100 miles in from the whole border all across the country. Uh, American civil liberties have been just uh, squashed and now we have what is essentially a secret police that is unaccountable uh, within a hundred miles they can set up uh, 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 what's it uh, where you're driving and you have the to stop and search like... um, yes they can set up checkpoints uh, anywhere within a hundred miles within 50 miles <laughs> They can search anyone's, I believe it's 50 miles, they can search anyone's property without a warrant uh, in, in the search for undocumented. Um, and so this issue, right, of border fascism actually kind of sees itself uh, becoming realized here in America. Um, but, you know, one, we have this organized arm of the state that uh, has completely disregarded American civil liberties. And then we have these uh, far-right extremists going back to the 80s with the Ku Klux Klan. They've been uh, patrolling the southern border and, um, you know, destroying water and threatening undocumented people. And I'm sure people have died because of their behavior. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that uh, brought David Duke to prominence was these uh, excursions down to the border Um it's just really people talk about a crisis at the American border. And it's not that people are coming in. Uh, it's that the American government and the far right is unchecked when it comes to the border. And they can do whatever they want. They can build walls that don't work, but that do force people into death traps. Uh, you know, f forcing people to cross into a desert without the necessary resources leads to deaths uh, and filling those uh, areas with uh, fascist goons and the state, which isn't much better. It's just a murderous policy. So, I'm, I'm yeah. picking up a pattern here. <laughs> that's kind of like that's uh, America. podcast starts out with some shit talking and funny yeah. stuff. And in the end, it's always uh, gets uh, fuel for depression. <laughs> yeah, we uh, 
very yeah, yeah. That, but <laughs> we're just full of uh, happy vibes we, i think we're we're honestly we're full of happy vibes but the world around us is robbing off uh, us of our happy vibes and uh, like in this in these discussions on here we just gotta yeah uh, talk about what uh, what's taking our happy vibes and how we could uh, make it so that uh, we can share happy vibes with all the world yeah well it's you know it's does raise a question of but like what would a left response to all this be and what would a world federalist response should be um you know <laughs> i think of some federalist organizations that reify the particularly in europe right and this idea of building this european state they entrench the idea of the border right except you know it's not the national border ending at i don't know poland or whatever it's yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, Just keep the brown people out of Greece and it'll be good. Uh, yeah, it, it's... Um, so there's this worrying trend in the Federalists movement. Um, and thankfully, this reactionary within the left has kind of died out in the last few decades. Um, I think everyone can, at least in America, Eston could probably attest to this. The unions used to be reactionary as fuck when it came to immigrants. Um you know, it was, you know, there was just a general oppo being opposed to free trade, which is fine, mm. but it led to this nativist uh, reaction and this fear of immigrants are stealing our jobs uh, and we need to support the state and the crackdown on illegal immigration. And uh, that's the you know the idea of a free border is the boss's plan you know bernie sanders said that not too long ago that uh open borders is a Koch brothers idea which sure certain segments of the capitalist class would like a lot of a reserve army of labor thankfully the union movement and the left generally has kind of moved on except for of course police unions and the building trades which duck ass always um it's moved to a much more uh to a much more uh, better position of we need to protect migrants here and we need to unionize them in particular yeah. so they can't be used as a scab force uh, but that begs the question what do you guys think a left world federalist response should be you hear me now oh, he's back oh, did Aston leave back. us i don't know it's it's a really tough question all right Aston, what do you think um, of left world federalist or alex if alec wants to try to answer it yeah i okay um so there there Alex, will be another rant of mine now um uh, so the, the the problem is uh present on multiple levels like on a personal level as well as on a national or even supranational level and it comes down to the question if now that i'm based in germany will the rich people in germany uh share with the poor people in germany will the rich germany share with the poor countries in Europe and will the rich Europe share with the poor countries of the world or will we strengthen our borders will we uh, yeah deal forcefully with immigrants that come here and w yeah will we descend into fascism again and I've got no plan for that to be honest but uh, what I want to stress here is um, this overconsumption again that's present in the western world and uh, my hope for a leftist federal um or for leftist world federalism is um some kind of more planned economy 
that takes uh, that takes into account what Earth can offer us and where there are uh, limits to our productivity, uh, and then working out a, a sound plan so that everybody on Earth can can live in peace. And that's my great hope. And I won't see it. I I know uh, that's the idealist in me speaking again, but. Um, what what I want to stress here again, you talked about uh, how um, how immigrants are misused, like uh, to um, make uh, working class people afraid of them, and uh, in an economic sense. And if we uh, or if this paradigm of productivity is just abolished, like we, obviously we need some pro productivity, but right now we are overproductive, and people are forced to work in jobs that are just not really necessary. And uh, if we can somehow battle this one, if we, if everyone on a personal level can uh, have enough, like I, like from the sentiment inside uh, their heart, I have enough, I don't need, need more. I don't need another car. I don't need another house, um, stuff like that. If this can be culturally established, um, then I have good hope, but uh, right now, as we're um, living in a society of competition and um, on a social psychological level, competition is carried out by uh, carrying around uh, statuses of symbol, uh, symbols of status this way around. Um, I don't really have much hope that anything will get better. Aston, mm. uh, what's your thoughts? What do you think world federalists how they should respond to these kind of issues yeah like general, i mean like, what's your thoughts it's not an, it's for sure not an easy answer and i like what alex is saying about the overconsumption and how the system is structured uh overall and that it's not there's not i don't think there's like a silver bullet to a lot of this stuff i mean obviously it's not so difficult to see that things are immoral and there needs to be a change but the entrenchment of global capitalism into like every facet of our lives and you know you can't just like undo that with a flick of a switch um as much as we may want to um but my own experience so going back to like our own experiences i am uh I'm not from germany and i live in germany uh and i used to when i came here i was there's like this def there's this word that people like to use is expat and that's like a that's basically a rich immigrant uh, and a white immigrant. So that's a rich white immigrant yep. as an expat. Uh, and so I don't use that word anymore. Um, I say I'm an immigrant. Uh, and I was actually just at the lawyer today, the notary, which has to be a lawyer in Germany. And I was just picking up uh, a declaration that I am not married. And it's the second piece of paper that I got. I had to get it. A uh, first one, I had to go to the U.S. Embassy, uh, and I paid 50 bucks for that. And it was an official document from the State Department that said I'm not married. And then that wasn't good enough, so I had to get another one—a notarized, like, sworn statement that says I'm not married. Just to just to get married, I needed two separate documents that says I'm currently not married. And then I had to put that in the file, and I walked it all the way to the registrar's office, and I had to turn it in. And then there, it's going to get all approved by a judge. And all of this bureaucracy, I do think, oftentimes, like, God damn. I couldn't imagine if I wasn't a rich white guy or what means rich, but not super poor. Or if I was coming from like a war-torn country or if my situation was different, like, God damn, the barriers to entry are insane. 
all around the place. What if you didn't yeah. know what, what if I didn't have Freedy helping me the whole person. step of the way? I mean, she does all yeah, the phone calls, all the or all the websites. Mm -hmm. And I know couples. I know like American and French couples or something, or like, other European, and they and they have to navigate everything without having a native German speaker with them. And so just the language, I mean, it's crazy. And let alone knowing all of like the nuances of the culture, you know, like I was putting on hiking boots to go cause it's snowy. So I was putting on my boots to go to the lawyer and Freedy freaked out. She was like, no, you can't wear boots. We're going to a lawyer. We have to look very fancy, you know? And I was like, ah, oh, well, who cares? You know, fuck that guy. He thinks he's better than me anyway. Like, I don't care. <laughs> And, you know, so we got to this big debate about what, what it means to be presentable, you know, we use this concept and I was like, all right, I got to learn. So just like there, you know, you being the wrong type of person doing everything wrong in a way you don't even know you're doing it wrong. I just, ah, fuck. And then I was just like, man, man, it could be so much harder and it's already so hard. Um, so I'm very thankful for the privilege that I have. Um, and I've gained a, a strong degree of understanding for yeah, the, the experience that people must have must go through and how fucked it is to then and because i'm a white guy and so when they look at me when the germans look at yeah. me especially in holland too because i'm blonde they're like oh you're just lost you're you're actually dutch you just forgot you know they like they, <laughs> you know so there it's like they really accept me you know they think it's cute that i don't speak the language but then to actually be hated by the people too you know like that's a, another level. So it's like, it's difficult bureaucratically, yeah. language wise, uh, culturally, which is different than the language. Cause there's all these cultural nuances and shit. And then to also have like a, a big helping of fucking racism on top of it all. It's like, fuck, who would want to do that? Like you don't want to do that. No, no one wants to do that. That's terrible. That's just a, a recipe for a bad time. Um, so yeah, I just, I really feel for the people that get pushed out because of war or yeah economic reasons or whatever but it's like it's so hard um and what is the solution to that i mean i really am a big fan of yeah getting rid of the i don't know making it e much easier for people to move around on earth and all the barriers to entry need to go away and so everything i've just described the racism that needs to go away making people be global citizens and not hate everybody for their skin color <laughs> having a language that we can all a lingua franca at least a couple I don't know. And then also the bureaucracy and shit, you know, if my passport was good enough for me to work in Germany, if all the passports allowed you to have freedom of work so you didn't have to jump through so many hoops just to get a job or go to school. I just, that, that's the sort of stuff that I wait. So you're telling me the nation state is a bad idea and it's outmoded? <laughs> it's fucking shitty. What? I hate the nation state so much. And this is the only, so Freedy, my fiance is not a world federalist. She thinks it's utopian and just a silly idea and I'm wasting my time, which is great. But when we get into this immigration stuff, she's like, you know what? We really do need a world state. Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, and thank you. For, I didn't even think to ask you about what it's like <laughs> to be a quote-unquote expat <laughs> or immigrant. I, yeah, I've never, I never really thought about how that word is used, but you're, you're dead on. Like, it is really, like, it's only used for, like... Yeah westerners going somewhere else it's never i i i, I mm -hmm. would have never have thought to call you an immigrant mm -hmm. or anything like that and it's just like embedded mm -hmm. in how we discuss things um miguel what would you think like a just like left kind of world federalisty kind of idea of like to tr at least like a position to move forward with i don't know <laughs> i think that i mean if i if i have like some 
great idea for this. It would be awesome, but I don't. Whatever it is that the response is, it needs to revolve, I think, like, I'm all for abolishing borders and freedom to move for everyone and not just the rich. Uh, but I also think that there mm-hmm. needs to be a freedom to stay. I think that the first hmm. part needs to be not to yeah. wreck apart other countries, mm. which sounds very easy, but it's actually, I guess, a part of our world system that some countries get destroyed. <laughs> uh, it's, almost, it's almost like it's yeah, endemic almost. to capitalism. It's itself. almost like that. Almost <laughs> like war and peace, guys. <laughs> Somebody, somewhere. Yeah. Yet, I think you're, I do think you're really onto that. Um, you know, in talking to a lot of world federalists, you know, there's, there is this kind of like liberal utopianism in the world federalist idea of, uh, through multilateralism and through negotiations and treaties and international law, we're going to solve these issues. We're going to end war. We're going to, uh, stop the economic exploitation of the global south you know we're going to do this then that's and then we're going to do it Mm. by bringing all the countries together right and a lot of it you know lacks one a class analysis of the world right uh but also just like a complete misunderstanding of why these issues still inflict our world why there still is a nation state why does imperial uh and neo-colonial exploitation continue and really it's without an anti-capitalist uh perspective like they're going always going to fall into that trap of uh there's not really a way forward except for bugging uh un officials and bugging state officials and things like that of uh you know, hey, we need a world government, which we do. We we quite obviously do need a world government. It, it's a good idea. Uh, we do need to abolish borders. For me, the question remains is if that's possible under capitalism itself. And, and that's something I remain extremely doubtful of. Um, you know, but then again, that's just me being a, you know, unrepentant Marxist, right? I th- you, you tell me how to... Sl- sl- so ask me how to solve a question i'm like okay well it's a you know independent working class movement that's built on the ideals of uh of ending capitalist exploitation right that's my answer yeah you and alex share that just just read more Um, theory guys but no i i well i actually don't think theory uh no, okay, well, I, I take that back. I think theory is actually important on this because the left misunderstands what imperialism is. Uh, you know, it's ever since the 60s and the new left, there's just been this idea of imperialism is this political domination of other countries, right? And so you get the anti-war movement of just like, hey, let's not do that, right? And we're going to tell our politicians not to do that, Um and even on the more radical left, you know, it, it just comes down to we're going to cheer on the other side and we're going to hope that we can get a quote unquote anti-imperialist uh, person in power. That's not possible <laughs> without an independent working class movement uh, to just to just say you're an anti-imperialist doesn't make you an anti-imperialist, right? It's there has to be that it's not a question, something that's going to be solved 
by the bourgeoisie. It's uh, when it's fundamentally in their interests to, one, keep the nation state as is, right? Two, to keep exploiting the rest of the world. Uh, and three, to keep oppressing workers at home, right? And I think any working class movement has to go back to the uh, internationalist spirit mm. uh, on which our movement was founded of workers have no country uh, and we should not be loyal to the nation state. Uh, we may organize around the nation state because it's full in the sense that uh, you can't just take broad uh, principles and apply them on a world scale. Uh, you know, material conditions affect what's possible in each country. That's perfectly valid, right? But we've uh, let ourselves just fall into like this nationalist delusion for the last 50 years that one liberation is possible in a national context uh, to that uh, you can break away from imperialism uh, merely through either a revolution or by declaring yourself anti-imperialist. You know, I think of, you know, China and Hong Kong, uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, Chinese government, you know, when people would criticize it, uh, its actions in Hong Kong would say, hey, stay out of uh, China's affairs. Uh, you know, you're violating our sovereignty and that is imperialistic and we are an imperial anti-imperialist country. Or Iran, which just cloaks itself in anti-imperialism, uh, but is nowhere near the thing, right? It's a reactionary theocratic state uh, that murders socialists. Um and in no way should be supported, right? It's as members of the working class or some of us who aren't, but are sympathetic to the to cause of working class independence and uh, emancipation. We do need a return to a world movement. I think that's what's key. We, but you know, not like a concrete way forward, right? In America, we can't even found a fucking working class party. So how are we going to find a worldwide working? But I think if we want to continue, right? And if we want to see world federalism brought about, that is a prerequisite. Uh, even in a social democratic sense, if people believe reform is possible within capitalism, right? We need a mass movement that can force these ideas uh, to be enacted. Right. This idea that uh, we can uh, just petition government officials until they recognize world federalism is a good idea or socialism is a good idea uh, and that they'll carry it out is not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, if you believe in reformist politics, you know, may, it might be possible that a mass movement what? could affect that change. Uh, and so, you know, in the world federalist movement they talk a lot about world federalism from above or below and it's like a weird character of mm -hmm. like socialism from below or on high but it's like there's a lot of similarities between the two movements which i think anyone who reads about both will recognize right because we're trying to do something similar except i think world federalism for too long has been like a middle yeah. class like yeah. bourgeois exactly. kind of and, uh, one thing about reformism is um <laughs> in my opinion that whenever it works um there's the usa that comes in crashing the party like in south america so there's that uh, so mm -hmm. the whenever a peaceful transition yeah. is made by the people um it conflicts with the interests of um the bourgeois class or the capitalist class and 
Yeah, there is uh, still military means uh, that can prevent Which... um, actual social change, unfortunately. Mm. And of course, there is money to be made in that. Yeah, or even yeah, or even revolutionary change, right? Of you know, countries that couldn't get those reforms democratically, right? That they fought, mm. fought an armed struggle. They face the same problem, right? Of the West in general and America in particular uh, <laughs> as a fondness for launching coups, for invading. Um, and really, you know, I think it's of utmost necessity for us in the Imperial Corps is to foster a disloyal working class movement. Uh, in America, uh, socialists for a long time have uh, tried to make socialism American and have tried to mm -hmm. like promote like a left-wing patriotism mm -hmm. and that's a dead end right we need to push past that and be like no fuck our country they're wrong and yeah. you know to go back to the internationale right uh, that's a real problem. if they keep sending that's a real problem right there if they keep because sending I, us i just can uh, relate yeah. to the workers at the covid stations at my uh, hometown hospital um the right point to do a general strike is now where they're dearly needed, but they won't strike because they know they are needed. If uh, they, if they don't, uh, if they stop working, all these nurses and even doctors, um, or even the um, even the cleaning personnel, because they are heavily underappreciated. I just can't stress this enough. If a, a if a hospital wouldn't be cleaned, uh, all the uh, illnesses would spread. To an extent we can't even imagine and they are Absolutely. extremely integral to the system hospital and if they all stop working their fr friends would die their uh their neighbors would die their children and uh, grandmothers and mothers and whatever um that's why um this mm -hmm. uh this idea just uh can't work and there needs to be an awareness. Uh, it's a cultural thing. I um, I think uh, there needs to be an awareness that this hands-on work, like uh, producing stuff, uh, baking bread, like uh, uh, being a nurse, like uh, being a carpenter uh, that builds homes or stuff like that. It's these are the jobs that actually keep the countries running and. After all this stuff has blown over, um, there needs to be a unification and there need to be um, political, uh, what's it called, if you want something, uh, like, and you, I just gotta look it up real quick, I need this word. Just, yeah, um, I, no, I think you're spot on. There, there. need to be a demands made, um, we as working class uh, have to force mm -hmm. on that and if we don't get them, um, we we just stop working, and that shows uh, who is running all our countries and who actually is expendable. Yeah, yeah it's um, and in that situation, right? I no one wants to put nurses and doctors, yeah, and, you know, doctors middle class, but <laughs> in that position, right, right of hey, if we strike for better mm -hmm. demands people will die right and for me that's where a class-wide yeah. movement becomes necessary right because those nurses uh you know would violate like a sacred you know 
sacred oath, right, to protect life, right? But that's where a class-wide organization uh, comes into play of they can't strike mm. for this issue, but we will, right? You know, they may have to continue to work, but we'll shut down mm -hmm. the economy if you don't give them their demands, right? It's that moving past this uh, division into uh, uh, just different trades or into different industries, but into like a class-wide you know, consciousness of, you know, uh, we have the power in society. If only we take a, you know, we need to take uh, control, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's my solution to everything, right? Is a militant working class movement. Uh, and it's the right answer, but I, I, I don't know the way forward. And I think that's kind of like the central uh, theme of this episode, it seems, right? We get to the super depressing thing. We know yeah. the solution, but we don't know how to get there, right? Uh, and I think that's it's something we, we have to we think need to long and find hard ways about, to right? interact with yeah. our listeners because maybe and someone has a better idea than we have here. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You can always write in at um, yeah, mostmoderate@gmail.com. Yeah. I'll always post your tweet or tweet me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> follow <laughs> me on not the show me, uh, but I do think that's on a less and end this discussion but i would like to give a shout out to uh this uh movement of a hundred days for freedom uh it's a campaign to uh free people from ice during the 100 a day deportion moratorium which is on hold due to the courts uh so the government is kind of breaking it uh but you know there's calls for ice uh, to uh, demand ice and the biden administration uh releases uh these people um and to uh, remove it from the record uh, i'll put all of this in the show notes but every tuesday from 9 to 5 p.m pacific standard time for the moratorium uh community members are calling in across the country um and so I'll put a document in the show notes where you can find scripts and everything you'll need uh, to raise some hell, hopefully. Um, and in particular, I would like to highlight the cause of Walter Cruz. You'll have heard uh, a recording of his uh, lawyer and uh, the great podcast host of This Is Revolution, uh, Jason Miles, uh, discussing his case. Uh, and we uh, wholeheartedly endorse uh, the movement to free Walter. We hope it comes about. And so I think that's where we'll end off this episode.